live again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bookstabber, the only podcast where we read a bunch of books. That's not true. There's a lot of podcasts where people read books and talk about them all the time. That is true. That is true. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything unique about this, is it? Well, I mean, I think uh, most of those people don't uh, don't criticize the books and the way the books get criticized on our podcast. How's that? I, I bet that's not true. I bet they do criticize it. Anyway, f- I'm Willow Payne, you- uh, co-writer and artist of Library Comic. And given to fabulous rants about books that we read quite often, but not always. And I am Gene Ambaugh, and I, I write Library Comic, which Willow draws. Uh, hey, <laughs> happy, hello, happy, uh, what day is it today? It's Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, Willow. It's always a happy Wednesday with you, Gene. <laughs> it is. And, uh, it's, it's, I think this is going to be a very fun episode. Um, today we're talking about a book by Kevin Wilson. Um, this book is called Nothing to See Here. And this book was recommended to, to us by, uh, my friend and, uh, former coworker in a couple of ways, uh, Sarah Hunt. Uh, Sarah used to write um, some of the uh, book review comics for the Unshelved Book Club, and she also did a book review site with me for a couple years uh, called Book Threat. Um, I'll put links uh, in the show description to to both of those. Uh, So I think, Willow, you have actually drawn some comics that Sarah wrote once upon a time, it occurred to me. Yes, I think I did. And uh, Sarah has listened to a few episodes of Bookstabber, and she suggested this book, uh, which Willow, you have the pitch. You have the pitch for nothing to see here. Sure. Okay. Uh, so this this book is narrated by a young woman named Lillian. It takes place in the uh, early to mid '90s, uh, and it starts with her getting a letter from her childhood friend Madison, uh, for whom they went to a preparatory school together. Briefly. Very yes, briefly, uh, before Lillian uh, was kicked out wrongly uh, through a shady kind of deal. But anyway, Madison wants her old friend Lillian uh, to come help her with a problem, so she sends her bus fare <laughs> and brings her uh, to a mansion in the middle of Tennessee. Uh, Madison is married to uh, a senator, a Tennessee senator, who has children from a previous marriage and these children what is the problem willow seem well they seem to spontaneously combust into flames and uh they've been taken care of by their by their mother who is now dead and uh someone's got to take care of these children and it sure isn't going to be the senator or madison so (laughs) they're like well here's let's get our loser friend lillian to uh come try to solve the problem i think that's a great pitch that 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 is very brief (laughs) that's that's fantastic right it's it's and yeah it and it doesn't get a whole lot more complicated than that all things considered it doesn't it doesn't uh yeah like you said loser friend lillian like like uh I think it's worth kind of talking about um, what happened and, and like, like where Lillian came from and, and where she's kind of gone back to and why that happened. Um, right. We spend a while in this book on the backstory of um, how Lillian and Madison got to know each other that Lillian grew up in this incredibly impoverished household. She, you know, had a single mother who was just never good with money or with men. And or with or with parenting, <laughs> it's important to say. Right, terrible mother. Terrible mother. And Lillian, being a, a smart, capable child, just did everything in her power 
to work against this and got herself a scholarship to uh, I think it was Iron Mountain High. Iron Mountain Iron Mountain Iron, Ma- Iron Mountain Girls Preparatory Academy. Right. Thank you. Um, I I don't remember what age. It might have been like a middle school. I think she was like thirteen because they said this is uh, like fifteen years later, and uh, she's twenty eight in nineteen ninety five when it takes place. Okay, yeah, you got the you you got the details better than me. My mind is actually stuck on the next book that we're reading, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. So, uh, so so Lillian worked super hard to get into this preparatory school, and she is roommates with Madison, who is already a child of rich industrialists. Who or, 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 is just or, or, going to inherit massive amounts of wealth? Or rich, 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 rich retailists, right? Um, so she comes from money, but they, but they have a, a fast friendship because they both realize that they are very weird people. Absolutely. And I wish I, I wish I could remember the better examples of this, but um, it's got kind of this Heather's vibe, where like Madison is clearly this very dark, humored, dark-minded individual. And and Lillian is just madly in love with Madison right. from the get go. They they are not shy about this. Um, and so these two, uh, they they are they are friends and uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, but Madison gets in some trouble uh, and is poised to get kicked out of school. But uh, Madison's father comes and approaches Lillian's mother about a deal. Well, I, 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 I think it, I think it's worth noting that like like I didn't I, I reread this the other day because it's at the beginning of the book, where like the reason Madison gets in trouble is that she kind of lets her weirdness hang out a little bit in some comment to one of her rich snotty friends, and that friend then tells the administration that Madison has some cocaine in her desk, and when it, when that's found, that's when she gets in trouble. Right. I mean, I don't know that. The, I, I actually don't see that as a symptom of weirdness. I see that as a symptom of being a rich kid in a preparatory school that like there were probably a lot of those kids that had some kind of hard drug in their desk. Yeah. But yeah. But I think the reason she gets turned because, in is because she kind of lets her freak flag f- fly a little bit. You know what I mean? Uh, I didn't find that that was evident from what I read, okay. but maybe it's possible. Uh, regardless. So uh, Madison's father is willing to write a $10,000 check if uh, Lillian takes the fall for Madison, to which Lillian's mother immediately agrees. And Lillian is kicked out of the school that she worked so hard to get into. And so then we fast forward to when she's 28 and she is working like two dead end jobs at like a grocery store and nothing is going well in her life at all. She has no money. She's never had any money. Um, Well, she's, but she gets this. No, I was gonna say Go she's ahead. kind of become this like stoner loser. She's just high a lot of the time, and she's kind of she's kind of stopped trying at everything for like the last fifteen years. Although she and Madison have still been in touch through letters, they've never seen each other, and um, and and yeah, so right. she's just kind of hanging out and doing the wrong things, but not not too wrong. She's not like in jail or anything, you know. She's not not in serious trouble. I don't entirely agree. I don't think I don't think Lillian has done anything wrong. I, I think she is entirely a victim of circumstance that she comes from nothing. She like she never had the money to get out of this town. She never had the money to go to college. The, these were not options for her. So she's doing the best she can, which is working bad jobs because those are the jobs available. Because she's stuck in you know. Yeah, yeah, but there's no there's no Tennessee. sense in which she's trying. She's just kind of given up. I think there's there's no sense in which like like the sense I got was that when she found out about the the uh, scholarship to the Iron Mountain 
Girls Academy, like she put all of her effort into getting that scholarship, like real long shot. But she's not she's not doing that now. She's she's just like she's just given into the stuckness of her situation. And she's. Right. I mean, the, yes. the world has crushed her dreams. I, you know, that's not her fault. It, in in every way, it, it is her mother's fault, uh, and also Madison's to a certain extent. She she definitely has a chip on her shoulder against Madison, and rightfully so. That Madison killed her dreams while like and took no no blame. And they talk about it later. Oh, you, like, you, know, you, you, you know what we forgot fine. to do is give the spoiler like, warning. Would... We're going to totally spoil this novel for you in talking about it. Well, okay, well, not so yet. far we haven't really spoiled anything that you wouldn't get from reading the first third of the book. So anyway. Uh, but we fast forward back to 95 and so so Lillian doesn't have anything better going on she knows Madison's rich so she decides to go visit her old friend and they go to this great big mansion Uh, we meet this guy named Carl who is like just this most stuck up uh, stiff shirt sort of ex-military kind of men in black looking guy who just seems to be the right hand man for the senator and there's sort of this great um, a lot of this book is about the nature of having too much money and having too much power at your your disposal and so a lot of this is is processed through Lillian's relationship with Carl that she just despises this guy from the moment that she sees him and there's a lot of character interaction where neither of them can stand the other because they just come from such radically different worlds and have such yeah, cause, different. Yeah, because Carl, Carl is just a guy everything. who follows orders. He does whatever the senator needs. He doesn't have any kind of moral judgments about it. He's just going right. to do it, whatever's best for the senator. Well, he has a he has his own initiative as well, where you know he's very much a take charge kind of guy, but he is also a loyal hound. On top of that, hmm. Anyway, so. Uh, so we are told uh, Madison sits Lillian down and says that, okay, so I married this guy and we have a child together, Timothy, and that's great. But he had a previous marriage. In the previous marriage, he had two children. <laughs> those children have been living with their mother since the divorce. And those children ignite <laughs> they just on burst fire into flames. Just yeah. all the time. They burst into flames. And uh, the rest of the book, we refer to them as fire children, as kind of a, uh, it's not quite a disparagement exactly, but it's also, it doesn't. What we want, what we want you to do is be their governess. This is what we want. they want you to do. <laughs> Bring them here, live with them. Just keep them from messing right. with our lives too much. <laughs> right. We need, we need someone to take care of these children until like either we because there's no cure for this as far as anyone knows no it's a medical mystery as to how they burst into flames how they haven't died but this keeps happening time and time again and until 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 she sees them until she sees this happen Um, until until we actually experience it you're like what like like, what is this book about (laughs) so the the children themselves are named uh, roland and bessie uh bessie is the older sister roland is the younger brother um, I think Bessie's like I don't 11, know. 12, right? And Roland's probably... Something probably like that. Like that that's seven, what it felt eight, like. I, I will say I don't remember I'd, exactly how old they are. But they're like wild children. They're just insanely crazy because of the way they've been raised, right? Oh, right. Our, the first time we meet them, uh, Bessie tries to bite off 
Lillian's hand. Just straight up, just bite it off. Like, as a, as a, as a, a sort of a trap that she's playing nice that like, I'm, oh, you're going to take care of us and that's going to be good and we're all going to live and be a happy family. And she just bites her and, sc- and tells Roland to run <laughs> as far as he can. Which I think, he, I think which Carl tackles him. It's it's, it's it's a beautiful scene, right? And like like the grandparents are there, just like the grandparents just want the kids to stay in the pool, <laughs> so that if they catch, <laughs> right. So I think that's enough. So 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 that's enough of the pitch of the book. Um, I want to get out and say that uh, of the books that we have read for the podcast, the the books that I have not read and the and the books that are not comics, this is the best really? book we have okay. read for this podcast. Yes. I I want I want Sarah to do all of the recommendations from now on because she's the only one she's the only one who's really well. Sarah Sarah job. is the best uh, book recommender I know. I just want you to know that like 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 she is the person who finds all the weird like interesting interesting books in the library collection, then takes them out and pitches them in like middle and high schools to the to the kids to the students. So so like like something I love like like I love the way. I mean, there's a couple of flashbacks in this. This is a very straightforward book. It's a very short book. Um, and I want to say, uh, Kevin Wilson, in reading this, I realized I've read every one of his novels. Um, the other two are The Family Fang and uh, Perfect Little World. Um, and they're all kind of about family. And they're, they're, they just have enough of a funny, weird edge, each book, that, um, that I really, really like them. And I, I think I will probably read every novel he ever writes. Um, he's also got two short story collections out that I'm going to try to read soon. Um, but, but like, I, I just love, I love the moments he comes up with um, in this book. There's an early flashback, I think, after, after Madison kind of gives Lillian the pitch, um, where she's, she's thinking about working in the, in the Save-A-Lot and um, kind of how she doesn't really want to be a parent. But she remembers, like, like uh, some lost kid in the save a lot in the supermarket where she worked and she takes this little lost kid to find her mother and when she finds the mother the mother is much like Lillian's mother she's just very neglectful doesn't even hasn't even noticed that her kid is missing basically doesn't seem to care that her kid is missing um and Lillian's pretty pretty pissed off about that and uh the little girl just takes Lillian's hand and just like kisses the top of it and then runs off to her mother like like but kind of looks at Lillian like yeah I know like, like like that little girl is Lillian in a way. And then Lillian is so worked up that uh, before she leaves work that night, because there's nothing else she can do, she steals a country ham, which I, I just loved. I love that detail. Like there are always details in these Kevin Wilson books like that that just feel so right. These moments that feel really right that bring everything to life for me. And that was that was kind of the maybe the second or third one in this book, but uh, one of my favorites. I don't know if you have that experience or not. Yeah. I'm excited to read the other Kevin Wilson books now. He, this is a talented author. I really love this book. Um, I'm excited to have a, an author that I can actually find other things by. I hope that I hope they're as good. Or I think you're going to love the family fang, quality. which I, I won't even spoil for you. But but uh, everybody should read the family fang. So funny. What, what did you like about this book, Willow? I'm, I'm not used to you. I'm not used to you saying you loved a book. Like 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 why did you love this book? Well, I think the greatest strength of the book as a whole is. Lillian is the narrator. I think that it's so funny. The the humor. I'm sorry. The We're okay. the lawnmower is back. The lawnmower is never going to go away. I'm haunted by a lawnmower for the entire recording of this podcast. Is it gone? Maybe. So what, what did you love about the book? I, 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 I like what are your favorite funny moments? I'm just trying to. I'm still trying to 
figure out what makes a book Willow Payne loves. Like, like this is such a strange conversation for me. Well, so this is unfortunate because I, 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 I wish I had written them down. I, because there were so many moments that made me laugh out loud that were just Lillian describing people or events or like... But I, I, I listen to this as an audiobook, and I don't have the cop, a copy of it in front of me, so I, I haven't been able to... Uh, I haven't recorded any examples of this. I listen to this mostly while driving or exercising. So I, uh, I really couldn't tell you the specifics, and that's, that's I mean, my I, fault. I, I, think, I think it made me laugh when um, she said... Um, she was trying to think about how, how to get the kids to live on the estate, and she, she's trying to describe how wild they are. And she says trying to get them to live there, like in the kind of next to the big mansion, because they live in the guest house, right? She and the kids live in the guest house together. And Lillian says, like, uh, it was going to be like teaching right. a wild raccoon to wear a little suit and play the piano, trying to get him to live there, like, kind of peacefully. Like, I love that. Right. That's a that's a decent example. I think there were I think there were funnier lines than that, uh, for sure. I and I think that I mean I think all of the characters in this book, I I love like Lillian is mm-hmm. the straight man, as it were. Um, in, in that she she herself is not really a weird or per, but even I mean she still has just a little bit of weirdness. One of the things that I love, um, and I I don't know if there's some indication of this in the text, but in the audiobook version, the the person reading it does an, an incredible job. And uh, there's so many times where like Lillian just responds to people saying weird things, or she goes, "Okay," like like she's not. She doesn't know how to part like she she wants to acknowledge that someone said something to her, but she also can't really deal with the absurdity of it. One of the funniest moments in this book for me, and this is kind of a silly this is a silly thing as a whole, but um we meet this oh yeah, this country doctor <laughs> uh, and this is pretty late in the book where we're we're going to meet a special doctor who works with the Roberts family. This is the senator's family who's been with the family for generations and he's going to come take a look at these children. And like, it's just described as like, we pulled up and this odd looking man was standing out of, out of there. Well, she says, she says he looks like Orville Redenbacher. Orville Uh, Orville Redenbacher. Right. He looks like Orville Redenbacher. And she just, and she just narrates that like, I really (laughs) wish, I really hope that he's not the doctor. And the very first (laughs) next line is I'm the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah as the man proclaimed and uh he turns out to be like batshit insane that he's like he first he's like all right well i'm an expert on medical and but also the paranormal and this re- applies to both but we're gonna talk about the scientific first to keep these things separate scientifically this seems to be some kind of uh form of ketosis uh, and from a paranormal <laughs> point of view, I think that you might be prophets or it's one or the other. Yeah, Satan. that was the and greatest. Like, and then she just pulls the kids out of there, <laughs> like, like right, right. Carl is also there. Even Carl's like, nope, this was a bad idea. Sorry. This, I, and it's like one of the moments that we see Carl actually uh, like get sheep. In. I mean, there's a great moment where they're all trying to check books out of the library and. It's they realize that none of them are eligible to get right. like none of them have library cards and none of them are none of them are really el- eligible to get library cards or at least they act that way which I don't think is true but they they act like it's like it'd be scandalous like we couldn't 
if if we got a library card, then we would acknowledge that these are the senator's children and that they live here and that this is like this is the press are going to come or something. So Lillian crafts a plan to steal <laughs> a, bo- a book from the library, which so there's like a fucking heist. And it's it's kind of great. So yeah, funny. I mean, I mean, and like like having a having a visit to the library. All the librarians love that, right? Stealing a book from the library, though the librarians don't. Double-edged sword, there, Kevin Wilson. Uh, but a pretty funny, pretty funny scene. Um, I loved. Uh, I love that, like Lillian, Lillian, with kind of Carl's help, they try to figure out what they can do to keep the kids from catching on fire in the house. Besides just keeping them in the pool all day long, like they, like she kind of tries to teach them to meditate, but she doesn't have any resources, right? She's just kind of like, she's kind of winging it. And they get like fire gel from like movie stuntmen that movie stuntmen use. And they get like uh, they get the clothes that like uh, right. race car drivers wear, <laughs> and they NASCAR like drivers. so they're smearing yeah, this gel yeah. on the kids all the time, trying to get them to meditate, and like the kids still just burst into flames sometimes. <laughs> well, but I mean, as you know, spoiler territory. As we get forward, we realize that the kids actually do have some amount of control over this. It's obvious that it happens right, under right, right. emotional duress. But also, like, there are scenes where they are shown to be able to be in control of their fire. And there, there's clearly some kind of mystical thing going on that is never right, fully right, explained. Right, right, right. Um, and, 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 and not only are they able to control it, but also they have the ability to sort of enjoy it. That, like, th- these are basically little, you know, human torches, uh, Jean Grey Phoenix sort of super, super. And as they're, as they're there, like, like they're in the, they're in the guest house and they're, they're, their little half brother Timothy is like looking out the window at them sometimes, like with his overprotective mom, and he's like this robotic, very formal little kid, right? Just like, right, right. I th- I think the description of Timothy is that he was like a teddy bear <laughs> who came to life. Uh, that that he is a he is a toddler, but he's always dressed in these like immaculate little suits, and he's this like super pale. I think he's probably like a platinum blonde, like giant blue eyed like uber child. And uh, there's a scene early on where Lillian is alone with Timothy, just trying to to be friendly with him. And Timothy has this exquisite collection of stuffed animals that are like like there's like a fox with a with like a like a beret yeah, yeah. or something, and you know a rabbit with a monocle. It's like it, very, it very high end toys. Reeks of like way too much. Right, way too much money has got into what are dumb stuffed animals. But he, the game that he plays with them is that he lines them all up, and then he has to decide which right. one is the best one for the day. Not, not like most suited to a task. It's like it's like a beauty pageant kind of thing almost. That like, but every day it gets to right, a different right, right, toy. Right. He plays that game one. with Mad- with uh, with Lillian a little bit, right? And like, it's clear like Ma- Madison hardly plays with him at all, right? Like right. nobody is interacting with this kid. It's just bizarre. Right, because yeah, it's. <sighs> Right, and there's a whole thing about how, like, Madison and Senator Roberts, like, their relationship is purely political for she the seems, most she part. She seems to like him a little bit, but, like, but yeah, like, it, it's, it, I mean, she, she was, her parents had this very specific um, goal for her, which is to grow up and marry a university president, right? And that's, that's why when she got in trouble, they were right. worried about it, because they thought maybe the scandal would keep her from doing that. Well, she does say that there are nice things about it, but at the same time, they spend right. that's basically probably, probably, no time That's together. probably the best thing about it. Like, Senator... Right, Senator Roberts is almost never there. He shows up in this book, like, twice. Like, they talk about him all the time, but he is not at home. He is always working in, in uh, Washington. Well, even early on, like, Lillian asks him, like, do you, like, what, do you actually like this guy? Like, what is this about? And uh, Madison's response is that, like, 
Well, I like that he lets me, he, he affords me the opportunity to right, pursue right, my right, own right. goals. Like, it's a very political answer of like, no, I don't love him, but I do right, love well, him. And, and she says and that power. initially, that, that, that like, like Madison actually says somewhere in the beginning that like she wants to be so powerful that she can never get in trouble for anything. Like, like that's her goal in her life. And so she's kind of achieved that. So she's happy enough. I want to say, I want to say, I think we should not spoil the ending of this book in this podcast the book is so short i know i think i think i think we shouldn't talk about it because we both like this book so much i i think i think maybe you don't want to talk about a pivotal scene but i i kind of have to talk about the ending because it's my one Uh, it's my one okay but don't talk about the pivotal scene but but i think that i i think that um well, well, I mean, it's it's funny because the senator is like the motivating factor for what's happening like like he is like he's kind of up for becoming secretary of state and uh, his confirmation process and everything is kind of creating all this stress around like what if what if they find out about the kids you know this is going to be a disaster um and so so uh, at one point like one of the funniest moments to me is um it's just it's just the emptiness of madison to me where um they're actually considering sending the kids off to some kind of center so they can kind of be put away more or less um and and Lillian is begging her not to send the kids away, just just to like 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 take care of them, like that somebody has to, somebody has to take care of them. And then uh, Madison says, "But why does it have to be me, though?" <laughs> the the arc of this book is Lillian seeing these poor neglected children and wanting, even though she never wanted to be a parent herself, she wants better for these children and is willing to be their parent. And that's Well, that's and at some point the, she, she says, yeah, she here, never wanted you know. kids per se because she didn't want a man to give her kids. But she, like these kids have fallen from the sky and they're kind of dangerous and she's willing to hold on to them. There's some passage like that. I mean, she says it, she says it multiple times that she never was interested in being a parent and that that holds no but but also she does care about these kids she she feels for them she uh, you know she sees herself in them like she, yeah. with the girl in the supermarket that like she recognizes that these kids got a real you know short stick in life and uh that that no one should be treated as badly as as she was as a child or as these kids and she, are and she now. keeps promising them she won't leave them um, which which th- there's clearly some pressure building for her to be sent or for the kids to be taken away from her and something done with them right so right well yeah and it's the classic thing of like if the world knows about these children they're going to be you know they're going to be experimented on they're going to be dissected for science like we can't let that happen which is which is some of the characters positions but it's very clear that like like the senator and madison are more like well we just don't want the world to know that senator roberts has <laughs> crazy fire children right that, that's right. just a bad look you're not going to get elected right. if you or, have fire yeah, children, i mean I, I would vote for somebody with fire children i don't know i don't know about you um and, and so like like toward the end like after after a pivotal scene we won't describe uh lillian goes on the run uh with the kids she kind of she kind of flees with them uh takes them away and right so the the ending after the pivotal scene is that Senator Roberts and Lillian get an argument about what is to be done with the children. And it becomes obvious, like Senator Roberts becomes so mad that he seems to become violent for a moment. And Lillian takes the children, gets in a car, runs, even with the help of Carl. Carl has now sort of become sympathetic to her and the children's plight. So they run home to the only place Lillian knows where to go, which is but, her but, own But Carl house. even indicates that he's going to have to come after and, them. So like go somewhere far away, right? Like, like get away. And she can't. She has right, to go to the right. most idiotic place. Um, so th- it's like, what are you doing? They hide out for an incredibly short amount of time. 
before William's <laughs> mother sells them out, which is immediately. We just have to see that she's still awful. Person. Yeah. Uh, but Carl, but Carl shows up, and it, they they actually have a little. They hash it out, and this is the part I don't like: is that it just kind of ends with madison and senator roberts saying like yeah you just stay forever and take care of the children and we're all just gonna agree that that's fine like because we spend the whole book with this idea that like well this is an untenable situation and everything about this is wrong and and something's gonna break and then it the the resolution is we all just decide that i don't think that senator roberts has anything to do with the end though i think madison is is uh kind of deciding at the end madison is exerting her power to decide at the end that like like actually like lillian's the only person who wants these kids and so it makes sense like somehow somehow the, the the journey is that madison now sees that that's that's the best idea too right I don't dis- I don't disagree that it is Madison exerting her power, but that does not make the ending more satisfying for me. That like that because it's still that we've spent this book in a state uh, that you know it's 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 it is conflicted. There is conflict, and then instead of actually having the conflict be solved, we just agree that we don't care and that the con the conflict is fine actually well, well but it, but it's like it's like the whole time the 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 answer is right there in front of everybody it's so obvious right but and there's a reason that it's resisted and then and then they see the the logic of it too like like that's why i can accept it because there's like there's a lot of there's a lot of i think uh not back and forth but there's a lot of kind of this weird version of protecting the kids and protecting jasper's reputation as as a senator and then a secretary of state that has has to be let go of right well, and it's odd because, you know, I, I, I so I, as a reader, like Lillian, I, you know, she's great and she's an incredible voice of narration. But it, is, it also isn't really obvious why in the world of the book um, she's brought into this in the first place, because like they already have like like Carl is a good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, fixer. That's basically what his job is. If, like if 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 they needed right, to right. kill someone, he would just do it. Uh, <laughs> But he, but he does other more mundane things as well. Um, but like, there's already a woman who works at the mansion who is sort of the perfect like uh, cook, clean, you know, Mary. do everything kind of person. Yeah, and it's not, it's not entirely obvious. Like she, in, fa- in fact, they they talk about like because the children used to live with the senator before they before we knew they were fire children. You know, she used to take care of them because the senator doesn't actually take care of his own children anyway because he's rich. And why do rich <laughs> people don't take care of their children? They pay other people to yeah. do that. Uh, like, I, I mean, I think that I think if there's a reason Lillian is brought into this, it's because she comes from a place of such vulnerability because she has nothing and because Madison knows that she can exploit Lillian right, right. on an emotional level right, right, right. as well as a financial one. She knows that she has sort of Lillian wrapped around her finger and that the the, the price of, of this whole thing is that we can't let the world know. Like if they had hired any other outside agent, like they could have let the world know that like this senator has fire children. This is a huge well, I think scam. I think Madison I think Madison and Jasper are looking for somebody they can obviously control or pay off. Right. And to kind of they're trying to figure out what to do and they need to bring somebody new in for some reason. Like Mary isn't the person they want to take care of the kids and Carl wouldn't work. And so they need somebody else. And Lillian is Madison's only friend, right? And, and she's manipulable. She's 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 uh, for sale in her mind. So there you go. Um, and, and that's that's kind of it's kind of true, like, right? right? Like like Lillian gets paid a huge amount of money to do this, and she agrees because she's super poor, and it's a huge amount of money. 
and also because she could be near Madison, right? So I'm not. I, I don't think we're ever told how much money it is. I'm not convinced it's actually it's truly massive. It's just an, an amount of money well, that we, you could right. live off of. It's like right. it kind of it kind of doesn't matter because it's a lot of money to Lillian, right? Exactly. I, right. I think it was an interesting choice not to name the amount of money because if you would name the amount of money, it would have meant something different to every reader. Right. Well, it's also it is a period piece, so by virtue of it taking place in the '90s, you know, the money can be less. But it, yeah, it's fine. It didn't matter what the amount of money was. You just have to accept said. its its meaning to Lillian, and you you kind of do through the way she acts, like both for and against against that amount of money. Which which I but, right. but it was a great choice because I think I think a lot of uh, writers would have been overly specific about it, and like then you would have had to have had the whole context of what she made at her other jobs and how much she worked and how she was getting nowhere. And instead, we just get this kind of sense of that instead of the specifics. That's That was the first reason uh, I, I, I quit watching Breaking Bad. I, I never liked the show, but I watched it because everyone was watching it and everyone no one would stop talking about it. But uh, as soon as Walter White makes a million dollars in cash that he hides under his house, as soon as he has literally a million dollars in cash and doesn't quit being a, a meth maker, uh, that, that was the point where I'm like, okay, this is nonsense. This makes no sense to me. I, I can't because I can't feel for this guy. I don't because he has a million dollars in cash. He can stop making. So you, you didn't make the transition to Walter White as the bad guy, is what you're saying? Well, I well I just okay. Like the show begins with like he has cancer and he gets fired from his job and oh everything's really his son doesn't care for him that much. Like oh it's real rough for him. I can see why he had to turn to cooking meth to make ends meet. And then he very quickly makes all that money. And I, I understand why, like, because that's the premise of the show. He can't stop making math. The show would be over. But at the same time, they didn't get, like, his cancer had gone into remission. He had all the money he needed. And everyone liked him again. So it was, to, in fact, it, it, it really bugged me that he gets offered a job at the at the company that he sort of co-founded to begin with but which is a whole other <laughs> let's just make this a uh, a breaking bad podcast let's let's really get into breaking bad because you know it, it would be a shame would if be. i didn't go on a real rant <laughs> i just oh my god no i hate breaking i bad. love that I show really so much never liked that show Everyone does, but it. I think it's. I think it's bad. Oh my! My, really my wife. Ma- my wife stopped watching it like... though. When like, like kind of a, about the same time you did, uh, she refused to watch it anymore because she just thought he was evil and she didn't want. She couldn't root for him anymore. And I. Right. Well, it, I, I can. I can root for some bad guys. Like I. I can root for. Um, uh, Tony Soprano. He's a bad guy. It's. Uh, it's the ways in which Walter, like the decisions that he makes. I I find I it doesn't make sense hmm. to me why he's okay. making these decisions. It's not it's not that I, it, it's not a matter of sympathy, it's a matter of empathy that like actually what he's doing seems dumb and it doesn't it doesn't seem in line with the character that I'm hmm. familiar okay. with up to this point. Interesting. <laughs> and, and so That's where I'm coming from. Wait, wait. How did this relate to uh, this book? <laughs> I've lost the thread now. I'm just thinking about I'm thinking about Breaking Bad. <laughs> I love that. I love that it's just rant central suddenly. Oh no! It well the the point was that um, Walter White had a million dollars by literally a million dollars in cash that he didn't have to pay taxes on at the beginning right. of like season two of Breaking Bad, 
And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to cook meth forever. And it's like, but you have the money. You have all the money. That's so much money. Right. And right. (laughs) That was so, yeah, I can see what what your your statement of like not saying how much money Lillian was making because she probably didn't make a million dollars. But, you know, if I, I it, it could be a situation like myself where the the amount of money be like, well, you shouldn't be doing this. Right. For right. $50,000. Right, right, right. well, and, and maybe she's kind of like it's a little bit it's a little bit weird. Like maybe she doesn't even negotiate for that. She just she just thinks it's going to be a lot of money. But at one point she talks about the money in her bank account. So she must know what she's making. Right. I, I think an interesting thing about this book is the time frame is a little bit unclear. Like, I don't know. I don't know the period of time. Uh, over which the events unfold. If it's a couple of weeks or a couple of months, it's a it's a little ambiguous. Well, they keep talking. They keep talking about um, the, 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 this this whole arrangement is going to keep happening until the end of the summer. I think it only takes place over you like so? two three weeks. Yeah, I, and I think that's basically the beginning of the summer. I don't think we ever get to the end of the summer. I I, I, I think it's pretty short. Cause we, cause it really, it really starts like from every, we, we, we wake up with them and we go to bed with them and like, we can right, track the right. days. In yeah. This I mean, book. I, I buy that. There at no point is there like a montage where it's like a week bed went by and everything was fine. No, we, every time these kids, yeah, but there's, bed, there's some sense in which uh, Jasper isn't there very often. And then he kind of comes back to have like a family dinner with, with the kids and everybody. And, and that's unusual. It's unusual enough that, like, I thought, well, maybe it's been a while now, you know. But and, and like, I think that I think that she had to keep the kids kind of from catching fire for a couple of days before he arrived to prove that everything was OK. So maybe. it w- Well, I think we only we only have the one dinner because it's a the, the dinner scene is a big deal. The, the kids have to, like, get dressed up and sort of it's almost like they're pitching themselves to their fa- their father, <laughs> like. That they have to make themselves lovable to some extent. And, well, you know, there's a great part where um, I think Bessie, I can't remember the exact exchange, but Bessie is talking to Lillian. She's just like, uh, it's something about, like, is it okay for me to hate my father? Or there's a part where she's like, I want my father to like me, but I also (laughs) want to hurt him. And it's such a great, like, the, the children written in this book are fantastic. I, you know, I was looking up reviews before we started this because I was curious, who, and there are people who don't like this book, and <laughs> those people are wrong. Um, and there are people there are people who think the children are poorly written, but the, I think these are the best written children well, that's interesting. in almost anything. Because they because they have these really, um, their emo- they, they, these emotions are not dialed down. Like these children experience like violent tendencies. They are, get angry. They are afraid. They they have actual human emotions. Like this is a lot of people in writing children are of the opinion that like, well, children are just little dumb people who, you know, the first time they feel sad, they're like, what is sad? I don't understand what's going on. It's like no like children have the full range of human emotions. I think that's interesting to hear coming from you because this isn't like, this isn't a YA novel. Like those kids are clearly being seen by Lillian and, and kind of explained through her point of view. Right. I mean, not explained, but shown through her point of view in, in this kind of brilliant way. Um, whereas like if this was a YA novel from more from the point of view of the kids who catch on fire, it'd be very, a very different book. Right. And it probably wouldn't be as much fun. I mean, um, right. Well, that's part of the reason I don't like YA books is because they 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 almost always ring false. That it's almost always from this perspective of like 
you can't you can't write this child narrator to actually have any idea of their own personal agency or like awareness of the larger world they have to just be as I think dumb that's as true possible. In, in the better books but but i know what you mean about, in, in poor in poor ya books yeah right it's 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 common amongst ya books i'm not yeah good books don't have that problem but no they're not, not they're not books, all good books are they so <laughs> you heard it first gene well, ambom they're not all good books gene <laughs> ambom canceled <laughs> Well, again, I don't, I don't, I don't read a lot of YA books, but when I when I do read one, I I tend to enjoy it. But I, you know, that's the one. That's the one I didn't put down, right? That's the one I don't. That that's the one I choose to talk about because I liked it. So my my friends and I had a conversation last night that I think was really interesting about the nature of of why because we've had this conversation on this podcast a few times about like, um, just to go on a tangent about YA, and it's like, oh, you know, um. I think there's a perception amongst the library community that like we we should recommend books to young people that like the protagonist of this book is 11 years old. So if you are 10, 11, 12, you could read this book, but like you wouldn't give a book about a 15 year old to to a nine year old. But um, my friend Tom was like. Well, when I was a kid, I read the Hardy Boys, and the Hardy Boys were sixteen, and I wasn't. Right, right, right. I, I think I think it depends. It, it depends. And but, but I mean, the, the rule of thumb is you you like kids. Kids want to read books about people who are older than them, like in general. You know, I mean, like you don't. They don't want to read books about kids who are exactly their age. I but I feel like we've had this conversation where no. you said the opposite. Like, no, no, no. no I, I I said books are usually marketed like like if if a book is aimed at like. Uh, like like the books aimed at at uh, fifth and sixth graders are the books about middle school, right? Where, where the kids the kids aren't yet, you know what I mean? The books about kids in high school are are kind of aimed at the kids in middle school, and then the books about young adults are the are the ones that are aimed at the kids in in high school. Generally, I mean not not always, but generally. All righty. I'll uh, listen back to the previous episodes, viewers, and point out our inconsistencies in our arguments. Okay. Tear us apart. <laughs> well, Commander. so what are we reading uh, next time? What's our next book? Uh, the the next book on our list that I I'm currently halfway through is uh, the Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Ishig- yep. Sorry, Ishiguro. Nobel Prize winner. Our, our first Nobel Prize winner. One more. Yeah, that is an interesting thing that we will talk about. I know you hate to talk about any book. Okay, yeah, I, I haven't so started. I haven't started it yet. I'll, I'll start it. I'll start it next week. Say so. anything. Uh, I'm reading an Irish mystery right now that I'm really enjoying. So I got to get through that first. Uh, about the Irish mystery, uh, I, I went to uh, BLMF Books in Seattle, which is my my favorite uh, bookstore in the city right now. Favorite used bookstore, and um, it's in the it's in the Pike Place Market, kind of in a hidden corner downstairs, uh, underneath the Magic Shop, if you know the Pike Market. And uh, the owner there uh, handed me this book. Uh, it's called The Guards by, uh, I think it's by Ken Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. And uh, it is uh, an alcoholic private investigator, former policeman, uh, investigating uh, the so-called suicide of a young girl. And, and uh, short chapters, short punchy um, sentences a lot of the time. Uh, I just really like the way it's written. It reminds me of James Salas quite a bit. And I'm enjoying it, despite all the drinking. And so. Okay, sounds interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's dark, dark book, dark, dark book. Alcoholic detective. What, what can I say? Right. It's my thing. It's hard. It's hard to have a light-hearted alcoholic detective book, isn't it? I kind of want to read one though. I kind of want to read the light-hearted alcoholic detective. 
Maybe maybe that's a comic. I, I, I also <laughs> don't mind reading the dark alcoholic detective, although I find that as a genre, it is usually fraught with the same well well worn tropes time and time again. It, it is, but I can't tell you how, how how pleasing this book is to me so far. It's it's been really fun. I will say the the lighthearted alcoholic detective book has been written. It was written by Dashiell Hammett. It's called The Thin Man. And if you haven't read that, Willow, you should totally read that. It's it's quite. It, uh, until until next time. Uh, what do you say, Willow? Uh, I say email us at bookstabberpodcast at gmail dot com. Tell us tell tell us what we should read next, please, please. We need suggestions. I've been Willow Payne. And I am still Gene Ambon, and uh, keep stabbing. Thanks.